morning, everyone. Uh, I might pray just to start. Father, we want to thank you. We adore you for who you are, a God who has gone to great lengths to reveal yourself to us and who desires that we might know you. And God, we, uh, we never cease to be amazed by this and pray that your spirit would be at work uh, in us, within us, around us this morning, helping us to know not just more about you, but in some way to know you more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, I have to confess, I'm feeling a little embarrassed this morning as I stand here uh, before you. I, um, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed as well. I really hoped to prepare a cracker of a sermon for you. <clears throat> I've spent some time in prayer. I immersed myself in the text. Uh, but as I came to articulate my thoughts and put some shape around this message, it, it just seemed to me that I couldn't get away from the fact that there are really three points here that stand out. <laughs> and um, I guess that's not so bad, but unfortunately, each of those points is best described by a word that all start with the same letter. <laughs> so I'm working away. Before I know it, I've got a three-point alliterative sermon. I was hoping for something edgy and postmodern, uh, but instead there are three words I want you to remember, all starting with the letter B. Bitterness, bargaining, and blessing. So, for better or worse, here they are. Bitterness, bargaining, and blessing. Let's have a, a think about those. Uh, my daughter was reading 1 Samuel some time ago, a few weeks ago, and she said to me, Dad, why do we call this book 1 Samuel? Why don't we call it 1 David? Which is a good question, because ultimately the book is all about those initial kings of Israel, uh, a narrative in which David dominates, as you know. Uh, but interestingly, like so many of the narratives that we find woven throughout the scriptures and not unlike the Bible's primary narrative, that story about Jesus, this narrative opens in an out-of-the-way place and involves some extremely ordinary people. It doesn't begin with David, it begins with Elkanah and Penina and Hannah. And I think that's worth just reflecting on uh, for a moment. Because this story, which is to relate the deeds of kings and nobles, begins with a socially marginalised woman in an obscure Israelite village. What a, what a great way to subtly subvert our thinking about God, whom we assume is interested in the rich and the powerful, uh, the beautiful and the wealthy. How will these mundane affairs turn out to be significant in this providential purpose of God? What sort of God works through ordinary interpersonal conflict to accomplish far-reaching social change? Even more intriguing is the fact that the interpersonal conflict is essentially born out of a polygamous relationship. Elkanah, we're told, had two wives, Penina and Hannah. Polygamy, there it is. Now many people read stories like this in the Bible and say, ah, look, there's polygamy in the Bible, what a hopelessly out-of-date, socially inappropriate book this is. It's got polygamy in it, along with a whole bunch of other socially inappropriate uh, practices that represent unjust behaviours, like slavery and primogeniture as well. And if you're not sure what that is, that's that practice of favouring the oldest member of the family. Why are we reading a book that's full of these sorts of things? It's outdated, it's offensive, it's regressive. And a surface reading of the Bible may well leave us with that sort of impression. 
Uh, however, I like the way that Robert Alter, who's a professor in Jewish literature at Berkeley University, in his book, The Art of Biblical Narrative, invites us beyond a superficial reading of the Old Testament. He invites us rather to notice that wherever these unjust practices occur in the Old Testament, we don't find them endorsed by the text of the Bible, but rather we find the text subverting these ancient patriarchal institutions. So even though the culture favours the oldest child in the family, again and again we see God choosing a younger rather than an older child. He chooses Abel, not Cain. He chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. Joseph is by no means the oldest brother. Similarly, with slavery, it's the Jewish nation that has been enslaved that God favours and chooses and rescues rather than the powerful and prosperous Egyptian nation. God's favouring the slaves, you see, subverts this practice of slavery. And wherever polygamy occurs in a similar way, we find it simply wreaking havoc every time. Culturally, socially, emotionally, spiritually, in every way, it is a disaster wherever polygamy gets practised. And that's certainly the case here. There are two wives, one has children and the other doesn't. Poor old Hannah. Her life is miserable as she daily lives with this competitor who constantly rubs her nose in her inability to conceive. The pain of childlessness is a terrible thing. And I just want to pause and allow us to absorb that. I know that uh, my wife and I were attempting to have children for about 18 months before she initially conceived. And just for that short period of time, uh, it felt like a monthly struggle and, and, and battle and, and challenge. The pain of childlessness in an ongoing way can be so much more than that. Of course, it's worth pointing out also that the pain of childlessness is often matched by the pain of having children as well. And I'm not referring to the momentary pain, physical pain of childbirth, though I wouldn't want to diminish that in any company whatsoever, but, but rather that emotional pain of struggling with children who, whom we love profoundly, but perhaps who don't always love us in return, or who make poor choices or get into serious trouble, or develop chronic or fatal illnesses, or are victims of crime, or have terrible accidents. Not having children is a bitterly painful and disappointing experience, but of course, having children doesn't automatically take the pain away. So we just need to put that out there as today's happy thought. Um, But Hannah certainly felt deeply, felt deeply the pain of childlessness. Every year, the family went up to Shiloh to make sacrifices and to worship. One of the things that a family would naturally give thanks for was their children. So even going to the place of worship wasn't necessarily safe for Hannah. It highlighted her pain and her experience. And Penina would take the opportunity to stick the emotional knife into Hannah's heart and to twist it several times. In verse 6 it says, Her rival used to provoke her severely, to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, She used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Now, the text really 
uh, here, I think, is dripping with all sorts of irony that we miss if we just think about Hannah and her personal problems. Because despite the sense of tragedy and weakness surrounding Hannah, her pain is nevertheless being used by the author to challenge some pretty big assumptions in Israel. Ironically, Elkanah loves the wife, Hannah, who is childless, over the one who has borne him children, Penina, which again subverts the social assumption that bearing children, that producing external fruit is somehow the most important thing, the thing that defines a person's value and worth. The text also makes a subtle suggestion, or a number of subtle suggestions, around the role and nature of worship. Going up year after year to make sacrifices does nothing to relieve Hannah's pain and distress. The reader is left to wonder, well, just how effective is this sacrificial system anyway? What good does it actually do? Is it meant to be an end in itself or primarily point towards something beyond itself? Is the worshipper's trust to be placed in the act of sacrifice? Or perhaps there's something else that we need to be looking for. Perhaps the trust should be placed in the one to whom the sacrifice is made. So the text keeps inviting us to be surprised by this narrative, even though we have to dig a little to find those surprises, and even although these things, I'm sure, are a million miles from Hannah's mind as she experiences her pain of childlessness. All she can see is that immediate circumstance. But she does a very smart thing in the midst of her bitterness. She cries out to God. Hannah takes the opportunity of being in the house of God to turn her pain into prayer. And just being really practical for a minute, um, I think it's true that prayers born of pain have a funny way of being incredibly real and very powerful. Interestingly, Hannah prayed in a way that we don't really encourage people to pray these days. She prayed a, a type of prayer that uh, is really quite common in the Old Testament, but we don't find anywhere in the New Testament. What she did was to pray a bargain with God. Now, in a format of bargain prayer, the formula goes something like this. God, if you will, and then you insert the thing that you desperately want, then I will, and you insert the thing that you're willing to do to try and get the thing that you desperately want. Now, I wonder if you've ever prayed like that. Uh, in Hannah's case, it was, God, if you will take pity on me and give me a child, then I will give that child back to you in your service, to be trained in the service of the temple, uh, to take this Nazarite vow, uh, and, and really, in a sense, to be yours. I will give them up to you for the rest of their life. This is a very natural sort of prayer people pray when they're desperate. We sometimes, of course, as I'm sure you know, call it the foxhole prayer, making reference to soldiers in trenches or foxholes who are in mortal danger on the battlefield, such that even atheists at times have been known to cry out to God, if you'll just save my life, then when I get back I'll do this or that or I'll live my life for you. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Uh, but probably all of us at some point in our lives have prayed a bargaining prayer. If we haven't, we probably will. Interestingly, though, this isn't held up as a model of prayer in the New Testament. 
something really critical changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Instead of bargaining prayer, in New Testament times, rather, we are encouraged to practice what might be called believing prayer. Believing prayer takes as its basic <coughs> assumption that if we are Christians, if we're followers of Jesus, then God is not an adversary whose favour has to be won or bought in some way. Archbishop French, I think, put it well when he said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. Rather, it is laying hold of his willingness. And this is a fundamental difference. Believing prayer assumes a posture that God is actually in favour of blessing me. And as I line myself up increasingly with his purposes, then I will be able to participate in those purposes and experience the blessing that goes along with that. Believing prayer doesn't assume that I have stuff that I can give to God, that I can use to bargain. Because when I choose to follow Jesus, if we're honest about that commitment, then everything I have and everything I am becomes His. If that's the case, there's no point in bargaining. And so when I ask for something in prayer, I shouldn't try to manipulate God into answering my prayer by bargaining, but rather trust that God loves and accepts me. Trust that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has removed the barriers and the hindrances that stop me from connecting to the life of God, and trust that God's Holy Spirit is vital and living and active in the world today, that he lives indeed within me and can enact anything that the Father instructs him to believing prayer. John 14 described believing prayer with the words, And you can ask me anything, says Jesus, in my name, and I will do it. And I think the key phrase there is, in my name. Whatever your request is, whatever you're asking God for, would Jesus be willing to put his name to that request? If your prayer were a petition, would Jesus be happy to sign that petition? If so, then we're invited to trust that he will be at work to fulfill his purposes, believing prayer. So the first thing we noticed in this passage was the bitterness of Hannah's experience. The second thing was the way she turned her pain into prayer and sought to make a bargain with God, though we hastily add the Bible encourages us to engage in believing rather than bargaining prayer these days. But the third thing we notice is then the blessing that Hannah received. It doesn't come quickly or easily, but there is blessing in the end. I mean, poor old Hannah. As if it wasn't bad enough that her, other, her husband's other wife was giving her a hard time about being childless. To make matters worse, when she does go into the temple to pray, the elderly priest Eli saw her just mouthing her words of anguish. She wasn't speaking them out loud, but they were, they were being so felt that she was physically articulating the words with her mouth. And Eli assumes this strange behaviour means she's been drinking and isn't fully quite with it. And this is an important point in the broader narrative of 1 Samuel. It really gives us some crucial information about the state of the nation and particularly about the state of the priesthood. That's going to be addressed throughout the rest of the book. Eli, you see, is supposed to be cast in the role of priest. What do priests do? 
They are intermediaries between the divine and the human. In fact, or rather the fact that Hannah is not directly inquiring of Eli is very telling. She comes up here every year. She knows the quality of priestly service that you're likely to get out of Eli and his sons. And so instead of inquiring of the Lord through the local priestly oracle, as you normally would, she instead chooses the more self-protective option of sitting and praying to the Lord just by herself. Even if in her mind it might reduce the probability of that prayer being heard. Whatever happens, if she can, there's this sense in the text that she's going to avoid having to engage with, with the priesthood. But engagement, as I've said, does take place because Eli sees her praying and he fulfills not a true priestly role, but rather is cast in the role of a parody of priest by instead of offering her pastoral support, as you would expect, he instead denounces her using a, a poetic phrase, although the poetry of the statement doesn't really come through all that well in the New Revised Standard Version, but the semantic and the rhythmic parallelism leaves the reader in no doubt that Eli is uttering this sort of quasi-prophetic statement, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine, he says. And so, in contrast to the prophet Samuel, to the prophet that Samuel would become, Eli, who turns out to actually be a whole lot better in the priestly role than his sons, uh, Phinehas and, and Hophni, Eli is so off the page that he confuses fervent prayer with drunken mumbling and gives poor old distraught Hannah this serve by confusing her pious devotion for public drunkenness. But when she explains her circumstance, Eli finally properly assumes his priestly role, he realises his mistake and he extends to her a blessing with the words in verse 6. Go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. Is that in verse 6? No, that's beyond. Sorry, I've got 17. that number wrong. 17, thank you. Um, despite the faultiness and inadequacy of the messenger the message still comes to Hannah with tremendous power. The words, um, words of blessing, words of encouragement, their power can often be disproportionate to the number of words said. And I think it's lovely uh, the way verse 18 then uh, goes on and says, Then the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. The story goes on to tell how she did conceive. She gave birth to a son, whom we know was called Samuel, which means the Lord hears. He heard her prayer. And as Hannah promised, she took him to the temple when he was old enough and left him in the care of Eli the priest. And Samuel grows up to become one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. So Hannah was blessed in the end. Even although she was blessed... I want you to notice there was still plenty more pain ahead as she gave up her child to serve in the temple. This longed for, prayed for, hoped for child. And she gives him away. And so blessing, even the blessing of God doesn't always go the way we want it to, does it? I wonder if you've ever heard that little poem entitled The Blessing of Unanswered Prayer. You probably have, but just let me read it. I asked for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak 
that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty so I might become wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of people. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life and I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I'd asked for but everything that I needed. None of my prayers were answered. I am among all people most richly blessed. So there's Hannah's story. Bitterness, bargaining and blessing. In one sense, we all experience those things in our lives. But in another sense, I think in an ultimate sense, it's also true that as we read this story through the filter of the wider Christian story, and particularly through the lens of Jesus' death and resurrection, we actually see that in a profoundly comprehensive and meaningful way, Jesus engages with these three things for us. And there we have the essence of the gospel. Let me put it this way. We face a future where blessing is assured, do we not? Why? Because Jesus has faced the ultimate bitterness. And in a sense, and this is probably going to be misunderstood, but just allow me to use these words loosely, in a sense, struck a bargain on our behalf. In this life, and particularly on the cross, Mm -hmm. Jesus faced that ultimate bitterness. As he stared that bitterness down, he arranged the circumstances, he enacted a transaction by simultaneously satisfying both justice and exercising mercy, as it says in Romans 3.26, so that we would never again have to bargain with God. God in Christ faced the bitterness and enacted a love so powerful that we were freed from ever having to or needing to bargain for our lives. Now, to be sure, there's still a lot of bitterness to be faced in life, even though that's happened. But we face that with the quiet confidence that God has our back. That as His Holy Spirit lives within us, He will guide us to negotiate life's pain in a way that takes the sting out of it. Because we know that we are loved and that our future is secure. The pain hurts no less, but God's presence with us through His Spirit means that we no longer have to face it alone. And we can know that it won't prevail in the end. God prevails. He who assures our blessing by facing our bitterness and striking the ultimate bargain on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, for all that he went through to give us life, both in this world and in the one to come. God, give us courage to face the bitterness in life. Give us faith to pray believing prayers and to thank you for the assurance of your blessing. Our plea is heard at your throne. Our names are written on your hand. We are yours and you are ours. Help us. God, to live in the light of that, help us to worship in the light of that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.